Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We now enter a very important time in our study of the book of 2 Timothy, where Paul gives direct information and training to his protege, Timothy, who has the position of pastor as pastor of the church. Paul is nearly at his time of death, and he wants to pass on the information that was given to him by God. This is information that is good for all of us, though, including our teachers and pastors in today's churches. The Believer's Bible Class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We spend a short time beginning at about 9 a.m. for a snack and fellowship with our fellow believers and friends. Then Doug digs deeply into his lesson, which he has spent many hours preparing. We would love to meet you if you are in the area. We love having visitors to our class. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom and open our Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here now is our longtime friend, Doug Brady. We are studying in the book of 2 Timothy. I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you look at the top of your lesson, it will show, now there's a conspiracy theory going out that I'm going to make something special I didn't want anybody to know about because there's no titles on there. It's just not that somebody was at a conference this last weekend and forgot to put the title up there. That couldn't be the case. And so I wanted you to understand that on your notes, it says chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. Well, it started out as 19 through 26, but it grew and it grew until I realized we can't do that. We may not finish all of this today. And that's fine. If we don't finish it, we'll do it next Sunday. So we're not going to lose anything. I want you to see. Now, you need to understand one other thing. Now, I'll probably repeat this several times. Chapters 3 and chapters 4, or at least uh, the first part of chapter 4, are going to be talking about a subject that's rather controversial. And it has to do with apostasy. Apostasy doesn't happen in the world. It happens in the church. And apostasy is alive and well in the churches of our country. And I have grave concern that is making inroads into our church. Would we know that there may be a concern about apostasy if people in our church are praying to Allah and Isa? Would, would we know? What if, um, I got to be careful what I say. Julie told me that when you start teaching about apostasy, they're probably going to ask you to leave. But Julie sometimes is a little overboard on those kinds of things. <laughs> I have found, but she gives me warning. And now that she's back, I'm going to be careful what I say. Would we be willing to ask ourselves, as Paul is asking Timothy, when the persecution comes from without and the apostasy comes from within, will we lose heart and quit? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Now, will you ever know the answer until it comes? No. But as Daniel taught us in Daniel chapter 1, make the plan beforehand. Know what you're going to do when the situation arrives, not have to make up your mind then. I also hope that no one has contracted spiritual gangrene this week, like we talked about last week. But I want us, without really much further ado, to start in, and I want us to reconsider some of the things that we didn't get a chance to look at in 2 Timothy 2.19. But before we open up God's Word and read it, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the time that we could meet. I thank you that we can pray for our friends and loved ones. 
I thank you that we have immediate and anytime access to your throne. Now, Father, as we open up this passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I pray that you will speak through me. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be the teacher today and not me. I pray that you will speak to our hearts in such a way that the words of your scriptures be indelibly printed there and that we will not forget the message that you have for us. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, what does the word nevertheless mean? We say that. We go right on by it. We don't think too much about it. What do you think? In spite of, I think that's a really good understanding. You could look at the official definition in your notes, despite has just been what has just been said or referred to, but I want you, as you're looking at chapter 2, go back to 18. It says, men who have gone astray, talking about the apostasy in the church, from the truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, in spite of that, the firm foundation of God stands. Now, what is considered the firm foundation of God? This is very, very important to see and understand. What is the firm foundation of God? Anybody have a suggestion? Okay, there's a suggestion of His Word. Any other suggestions? I heard the gospel. Well, the gospel would be included in his word. Now, if you're going to have to say it, you have to understand. I think we have to come to understand, and this is difficult, but if you follow Paul's writings here, firm foundation that he's speaking of here is not the scripture. The scripture is the foundation of the church. The church is the firm foundation he's talking about here. He's talking about the born-again believers That's what he has been talking about up through here, and you'll see that from 14 on, he's been talking about the church. If the church is the firm foundation, what is it to be the foundation of? Is that not the most important question? If you have a foundation that you've built, what's it supposed to be supporting? What is... It's supposed to be supporting is the nation. And if you think about it carefully, God gave us the example when he gave us the United States of America. What was the foundation of our nation? The church. The foundation of the church, of course, was the Bible. But the foundation of our nation was the church. This is supposed to be the foundation. Yes, ma'am. Yep, we'll probably be gone. Well, when you say the end times, that's kind of a, it's been used, it can be used several ways. We will be here in the end times of the church dispensation. In the tribulation, which most people refer to as end times, we will not be here. And we're going to study that concept when we get to apostasy, because we need to understand that word. But we need to see that is what is the foundation. Now, let's go on. He says there is a seal. Having this seal. In Greco-Roman times, everybody understood what a seal was. Today, some people think it's a performer in a water show. Other people think it's some kind of military warrior. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking Now, you could hear and see if you went down to Austin when they passed, they put on the great seal of the state of Texas. And there are seals like that. Every notary in this state has their own seal. But everybody had a seal, a family seal, even a personal seal in the times of Paul. And a seal like this speaks of two things, that this seal he's putting on. 
It speaks of authenticity. You know if you had the sealed document, that was the authentic document. Also, it speaks of ownership. Those two things, ownership. When he places the seal on us, what does it mean? We are an authentic believer. We have been proven to be a true believer. Who else can say who is a true believer other than God? You can? No, you can't. There are other people who you may think are, but you don't know for certain. God knows for certain whether you're a true believer or not. He's the only one. There are going to be people at the end, you're going to say, what do you mean, Lord? We did this for you. We did that for you. He said, get away from me. I never knew you. So now you may know in your heart whether you are or not. You can't know whether I am for sure. You may believe that I am, but only God knows for sure and me. Now, maybe sometimes not even the person. They think they are, but they're not. So it's authentic and it's ownership. Now, let's talk about that even a little deeper because what it's showing when it says authentic is divine sovereignty. Divine sovereignty. God is the one who chooses and makes known. Who set up the plan of salvation? God did. Can anybody change it? No. You change it at your peril because you will not be saved. If you try to be a Cain and set up your own form, that's why he says, my name is holy. If you start praying to Allah. Now, We need to look at this. We'll talk more about that when the time comes. One of the things that divine sovereignty does, it it preserves. It preserves us. We are preserved until the time he comes back to get us or takes us home, one or the other. And we will come to see that. The second thing it speaks of this seal is persevering because mixed with divine sovereignty is human responsibility. What does the scripture teach? You get to choose whether or not you want to receive Jesus as your Savior. Whosoever will may come. But with that choice comes what? Responsibility. You are responsible for the choice that you make or refuse to make. And so we need to come to understand that. Now, if the church, the true church, is the firm foundation, we need to make sure before we go on, we understand a little bit about that foundation. And I have found that the true source of, or maybe one of the best source for understanding the church is Jesus. Now, where was the first time Jesus talked about the church? Or did he? How about Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 15. If you're looking in your notes, it says 16, 18. Well, 18 is the last verse that we're going to be looking at the most, but it starts with verse 15. Let's read that. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that is son of John, Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, there's a lot of people who do not understand this verse and the import of what it means. And we need to look at it very carefully before we go on in this book of 2 Timothy to understand. The word here, church, is ecclesia. It's the word that's used all the time. It is a noun. It is in the accusative setting, and it's feminine. Now, understand something. In English, we try to assign gender to a word that fits the word, you see. If it appears to us to be feminine, we find a feminine-type gender. And we would say her. If it appears to be a masculine term, you know, we tend to assign masculine to the word hunter. 
There are other words that we assign mass. Now, how they got feminine for a ship, I don't know. But we know in English that's, in Greek it's different. You can take one word, you can put it in masculine, you can put it in feminine, you can put it in neuter. And it changes the meaning of the word. Here, ecclesia is in the feminine gender, it's singular, and it speaks of a gathering together. Now, why would they use a feminine gender in that setting? Well, I think most of us understand. So the next thing we want to see is he's talking about this church, the ecclesia. What is the importance or the purpose of the church? Jesus saying, you had a question? I was just thinking, it popped in my head about the church being feminine. Well, the bride of Christ. Exactly. I was going to say that and I forgot to. I'm glad that you came up with it because I had gone on. The purpose of the church, number one, to glorify God. Number two, to build up and train to edify the saints. Number three, to send the congregates out into the world to win the unsaved and to bring them back into the church that is fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, you look at those. How many purposes are there? How many? Three. I would suggest to you there's really only one. Let's look at it this way. What does it mean to glorify God? What it means to glorify God is to praise him for what is who he is and what he is. But the purpose of that, doing that, is to make God attractive to others. To make God attractive to others. When you see glorify God, you should think, making God attractive to others. What's the purpose of making God attractive to others? So that they will worship him and recognize him too. Ah, you begin to see great commission there. Well, what about the second one? To train and edify. Edify means to build up. To build up the saints. For what purpose? We have to understand the church here. What is the church to do? It's to be the gathering of who? Believers. You mean this shouldn't be a gathering of unbelievers? No. What do unbelievers know about the church? They're not a part. You can truly say the church is an exclusive club of born-again believers. That's the bride of Christ. Okay? So I say, that's being awfully harsh. Well, it's not me being awfully harsh if you think that. It's Jesus. Now, does that mean we don't bring unbelievers to the church? No, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do that. But the church is about believers. But what are we going to train them to do? To go out and make disciples. Now here again, another phrase that we throw back and forth. What does it mean to make disciples? It's really very simple. Win, build, and send. We're going to win people to the Lord, train them in the scriptures, and send them back out to do the same thing we were doing. You see, did God design the church to want to bring the world into the church so that we can share our faith with them? No, that's not his plan. His plan is to train and build his people so they can go out in the world, share their faith, and those that receive Jesus as their Savior bring them back into the church. Doug, my father, you know, who was Jewish, was in church every Sunday because my mother was Southern Baptist. And I believe even when he died, I don't think he was a believer. There are unbelievers in church. We're going to get to that, I promise. Yes, a little bit. Yes, ma'am. In the modern church today, that we've lost that focus to where the believers are no longer making disciples. They depend on their pastor to do it. Wait, do you depend on the hired guns? Should a church be organized where the staff does all the work? And Well, no, and then the congregants, they're just there to support them and to pay the money. And to, No, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Should we have... If we're having evangelistic teams, should those evangelistic teams be made up of lay people? Maybe with a church leader, but lay people. I'm not going to ask the question, what are we doing in our church? We're going to move on. You begin to see the the concerns we're beginning to have that Julie has for me. Yes. This now deal that we're doing is 
going to have more direction than that. That's what they're saying in leadership. Do you remember a time when in our church we used to have an altar call? People who wanted to make a commitment to the Lord could come down to the front. Now, there was a team of counselors who would be there. Were they staff or were they lay people? Well, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Now, when the pandemic came, we stopped that. The pandemic, I think we've come to see People may get mad at me for saying this, but was way overrated. I, I, I toned it down just a little bit what I was going to say. Now, I have talked to some people who are high up in our church. When are we going to start the altar call again? His answer was never. I said, never, why not? We don't need it. Why not? Well, we have the staff contact all those people. And, you know, if people don't have to come down, maybe more people make the decision. You begin to see why Julie thinks the way she does about what's going to happen. But I'm going to teach the Word. I couldn't agree with you more. I could tell you some stories we don't have time today of where people came down to be baptized and I talked to them and they weren't even saved. But they came to know the Lord. So... uh, Let's, let's do this. Let's look back at this passage now in Matthew chapter 16. Now, look at it again. First, is this our church? It's his church. Look at it. It's very clear. I will build my church. That church doesn't belong to the us. Does it belong to the people in this class? Does it belong to the people in our church? Does it belong to the pastor and the deacons? Who does it belong to? Jesus. It's his church. We got to make this perfectly clear. Well, some people say, listen, it's kind of our church too because we're building it. What does he say? I will build my church. Not you. Jesus says, me. I will. It's my church. I'll build it. Now, that's the kind of leader we want, isn't it? If it's mine, I will do it. He's saying he will do it. We can't build a church without him. He's the one. Now, he may ask us to do certain things, and he may use us in this plan. But the church won't be built if he doesn't want it built, and it won't be built unless it's being done his way. I just don't believe that he's going to honor anybody that prays to Isa or Allah. That is is not God's name. When you read through the scriptures, he is very, very particular about his name. In fact, many times he doesn't say, believe in me. He says, believe in my name. Because his name is his character and it's holy and we should not do that. Number two, or or next, I want you to see this church is enduring. Now let's look at this statement here, the next one. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, I have heard minister after minister after minister say, what he's saying is hell will not prevail against my church. You would think ministers would know better. That's not what he is saying. Is Hades hell? No. Hell is the lake of fire. Gehenna in the Hebrew burning forever, and that's where Satan and his angels are going to go. He didn't plan for any human beings to be there. Let me say this, he didn't want, but if they make the choice, then they're going to join Club Gehenna. And what does Hades mean? Hades is the place of departed dead. Now, that's the Greek word. The Hebrew word is Sheol. A lot of people I know, know, my mother would always say, Hades Sheol, just so there can be no question, putting both words together so we knew what they talk. But it's the place of what? Departed dead. If you are an unbeliever and you die now, you don't go to hell. You go to Hades. It's the place of death. What is he saying? Death 
will not overpower it. Yes, sir. It is a place of torment. Well, let me, let me go back. Half of it is a place of torment. Half of it is a place of paradise. Now, not as good as heaven. Just like Hades, the place of torment, is not as bad as hell. But it is not a fun place. Bonnie. I thought you just said when we die, we'll go to Hades. No, 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 no. I said an unbeliever. If you were Abraham's wife and you died, you would go to Hades also, paradise side. That's where Moses was. In fact, it's called many places Abraham's bosom. And Abraham was there waiting the call. But you see, in time, the sacrifice had not been made yet. They looked forward to the sacrifice just like we look back to the sacrifice. Yes. I think we need to clarify that a little bit. When Jesus died on the cross, he went and cleared out Hades and took him down. Only half of it. Only half. Those there, and they're waiting the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those are the Father's guests. Oh, absent from the body, present with the Lord. No question about it. All right. They will stay there until the great white throne judgment at the end of time. Stay there until the great white throne judgment. It says death and Hades will give up their members and they will appear and there will be that judgment. Now, wait a second. We go directly to heaven because we have been judged. That's not the same kind of judgment we're talking about. The judgment that keeps you out of heaven is a judgment for sin. Your sin, Rima, has already been judged, and it's already been paid for on the cross. Now, will there be a judgment when we go up immediately up to heaven at the... Well, I always say we when we say we're going to get raptured, thinking that I'll be alive when it happens. Who knows? Julian may get so mad at me at the things I'm saying, but the fact is, no, I'm just kidding. The fact is, we will be judged on the basis of the things we have done in obedience, and that will be our place in the millennial kingdom. Rena, if you have been very obedient, you may be placed over three cities to be in charge of those cities. In addition to that, we're going to be clothed in the white robes of our righteousness. Some of us more than others, I guess. Some of us, no, you know what I'm going to say, and so I won't say that. Now, so our church is enduring. The power of death cannot overpower the church. Now, Upon what will the church be built? What does this passage say? The rock. It'll be built on the... Well, that's Peter, isn't it? All right. Who says... No, I don't mean in the class. Who says it's Peter? Catholics. All right. Well, isn't the word rock translated Peter the same as this second word, rock? Answer, yes and no. It's the same word, but a different gender. What do you mean a different gender? Remember, you can put Greek words in one of three genders. They, like us, only recognize three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. Neuter being an inanimate object. Okay, Just so there's no question about that. So, Peter is the Greek word petros. It's masculine. It means a rock. It could be a rock, say, the size of a baseball or a softball or maybe one of those big medicine balls that you throw over, a rock like that. When it says upon this rock, that is the Greek word petros. It's feminine. 
And what that means is a bedrock type situation. You ever seen, you know, or, or, or heard referred to as you go down to the rock when you're going to build a foundation. That's this concept of a bedrock. So the, I'm building my church on this bedrock. What is the bedrock then that he's saying if it's not Peter? In a manner of speaking, no. It's the statement that Peter made. What did he say? You are the Messiah, that is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the rock upon which the church is built, which is Jesus. But that statement about who and what he is. And so understand that. That's important for us to see as we look through this. Now, he is the cornerstone of this bedrock that we're going to build the church on. Now, let's go to verse 20 in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. Now, in a large house, there are only gold and silver vessels. There are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Now, this passage is interpreted all different kinds of ways. And there's controversy over it. Now, before this passage started, what were we talking about? The church, right? Were we talking about the church house? No, we're talking about the church universal. That church is all true believers. Now, I want you to think about this a second. And be prepared. I'm a lawyer. Does that mean all true believers in the Baptist denomination? Yes, it does. All true believers in the Baptist denomination denomination to be in the church. If you're a true believer, you're in the church, right? Does it mean all true believers in the Methodist denomination? Does it mean all uh, uh, true believers in the Pentecostal church? Does it mean all true believers in the Catholic church? Does it mean all true believers in the Greek Orthodox church? Does it mean all true believers in Islam? No, there ain't none. If you're in Islam, you can't be a true believer, right? Only one way. Allah's not God. Now, you know, Muhammad has said an angel was the one who gave him a Quran. Do I believe that? I do. I believe that's true. Whose angel, though, is the question. Yes, you begin to see that. All right. Now, when you see this word starting out now, we're changing something in the Greek. That's what that means. We're ch- now, consider something else. Uh, now, I want you to look at this difference. Now, in a large house, what he's talking about here, and this is a picture, he's talking about the local church. Okay, you with me? So, the large house could be First Baptist Church of Dallas. It could be First Baptist Church of McKinney. Or it could be PCPC. Or whatever else you want to consider. That's the large house. Now, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but there are also earthenware and wood vessels. How many types of vessels are there? It seems to me the answer is very simple, four. I don't know how many preachers and pastors I hear when I listen to them or read their books. Oh, no, there's only two. They're not two. There's four. Gold, silver, wood, and earthenware. How can you say anything different? There's four. Now, when I read that in English and I see vessels... What do I think? I think, well, a glass or a bowl, something that holds liquid, right? That's not exactly what this word is. This word is much wider in its meaning than that. If you look on what's on my notes, it's page seven. It has the word vessels. They're skuos, and skuos means household utensils and domestic gear. 
if it's in the setting of a house. It could also be the tackle and armaments of a ship, including the sails and the ropes. It means household utensils and domestic gear when used in the context of a home. Now, it also has a metaphysical meaning, which ties in here that you will see if you're looking at these definitions. It can be a man of quality, a chosen instrument. So, a good man. It can also, in a bad sense, be an assistant in accomplishing an evil deed. Because of that meaning, I want to say this again so that we have no question about it. Is Nancy Pelosi the enemy? No, she's not. She's an assistant in accomplishing an evil deed. The enemy is Satan and his angelic beings. They're the ones who have deceived her, and she being quite deceived does that they do. What do I want her to do? Well, you need to think about those things, but we're going to apply all three of these meanings to this word vessels here. Now, how many people do the, does this, does the church have in it? The church has four types of people in it. There are, this is the spiritual man. That's number one. That's a true believer who is seeking to please God and to obey Him. Then it has a second type of person, which is a newborn believer. They've just been saved. They don't really know too much about anything. Think about it. You know, I have two little granddaughters. If the first one, when she was six weeks old, we said, all right, we've given you a good six weeks. You're on your own now. How would she fare? Not very well. No, a newborn believer, someone who's just been born from above, needs to have the church nurture it until he or she, till they can become mature believers. So that's two. That's gold and that's silver. Number three, there are carnal believers. Now, you can find these distinctions But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. For he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. The concept here, in this first, in second chapter of 1 Corinthians, God divides everybody into two groups, believers and unbelievers. Now, in the third chapter, he's then going to take this group of believers and divide them into three groups. Show us uh, uh, the third chapter, one through three. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, carnal, as to infants in Christ. What's going on here, he now divides it into the three, spiritual, carnal, and newborns. There are no vessels. Four, spiritual, newborns. The next one, the wood, is carnal. What does that mean? It means someone who is a true believer, but has said, like Paul is concerned about Timothy, I'm quitting. You know what? I'm going to heaven no matter what, so I can live like hell now. I like living this way. It is fun to live this way. It is exciting to live in sin. Now, what would I be if I was to tell you, oh, listen to me, sin is not fun and it's not exciting. I'd be a liar. It is. For a while. For a while. Does a parent who is a godly parent discipline their children? Does our father discipline us? Yes, he does. Some of you could show the battle scars. We don't need to talk about discipline anymore because I was over-disciplined clearly as a child. (laughs) But the fact is, we've got these four type of people. The final one is unbelievers. There are unbelievers in the local church. Some churches more than others. Some churches would maybe surprise you. How many? So, What is he telling us this? Some of these are honor. That means valued, valued to God, 
Who are those? The gold and the silver. The spiritual and the newborn. Some of them are dishonored. Now, some people say, oh, it's not really means dishonored. It just means like mundane. The difference between silverware and plasticware. No, that's not what that word means. You look at the definition of that word, it means dishonor, ignominy, and disgrace. Maybe we can understand the word disgrace. Disgrace, being disgraced is not a simple thing. Being disgraced is not something that you just look at and then say, go on, I forget about it. It's enduring. Disgrace is horrible. Although in our government these days, it seems like they can ignore it. Now, some people say, no, wait a second. You're talking about a difference in believers. I thought all believers were equal. Well, in some respects, all believers are equal. All they are, are they all born from above? Yes. Are they all children of God? Are they all make up the bride of Christ? Are they all positionally righteous as seen through the blood of Jesus? Are they all going to heaven? That's where it stops. After that, there's inequality. Equal believers are not free to make choices on their own. Believers have the right to choose. And how they choose can determine whether they're carnal or spiritual. Look at some of the men who are clearly way above us. In 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 14, Samuel the prophet is talking to King Saul and he says, But now your kingdom shall not endure, for Yahweh has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept uh, what Yahweh commanded you. A man after his own heart. Has it anywhere else in the scripture, it says anyone else but that man was a man after God's own heart. No, I don't. I can't find it anywhere. Who was that man? David. David was a man after God's own heart. That's a unique situation. Let's look at another example real quick. In James chapter 2, verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness, and he is called the friend of God. I think there's two people in the scripture called friends of God. And then you can say, The eleven disciples, Jesus said, were his friends also. Am I his friend? He's, who's the one who has to say whether I'm his friend or not? He is. Daniel 10, 11. Gabriel has, is speaking. He's the he. And, and, pardon me, he's the me. The he is God the Father. And Gabriel has left God the Father's side, and he's gone down to earth, and he's talking to Daniel. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. Who else has he said, man of high esteem? I can't find one other in the scripture. You know, I have a program that I can put these words in and search for throughout the whole Bible. I don't find them. Anyone else uh, that he says a man of high esteem? Why are those people given those accolades? Because of their heart and the obedience that comes from their heart. Those men are radical obeyers. And God honors that. And he will. So, let's look now at verse 21. And that's probably the last passage we can hear. I thought we could make it to 23 and how short-sighted I was. But, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Paul is now indicating to Timothy... That this identification as honorable versus dishonorable is not static or fixed. Can it be changed? If you are a carnal believer, can that be changed? If you are an unbeliever, can it be changed? Yes, it can. Now, are there people who look at a carnal believer and they say, look at that. 
They're not doing what God wants them to do. It's clear they're an unbeliever. Are there people who should say that? Who say that? Who should be saying that? God. But they can have great, cause great damage. But I don't think we're in a position to be judging. Now, I, I have other people say, oh, Doug, I'm not judging. I'm just a fruit inspector. All right, Julie, because she and I disagree about this. If we don't ever reprove one another, which we're commanded to do, nobody will ever be corrected. Wait, now, did I say don't reprove? No. Saying they're an unbeliever because of their acts is not reproving. If we want to, we don't reprove unbelievers. Uh, we have to reprove them if they are un, if they're believers who are clearly violating God's law. We should we owe that to them. And there's ways to do it. If they say, "Get out of here," I'm not talking to you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, altar call can be used for that kind of thing. To come down and make clear confession and repentance. Now, you all can choose whether you want to say someone's an unbeliever or not because of their actions. But I leave that to God. Yes. That is two believers strengthening each other to maybe file out some burrs. But it's two believers. It's not one believer saying, well, because of this mark in you, you're an unbeliever. No. Believers need to band together. They need to help each other. They need, and sometimes strengthening involves pruning first and then building back up. And let me tell you, my life has spent a lot of time being sandpapered and filed. And it's not fun. But it's necessary. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't a true believer. And we need to come to understand that. Now, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master. Let's look at this for just a second. This word cleansing means to clean thoroughly. To clean thoroughly. Who is the only one that can thoroughly clean us? Now, we have two types of dirt, so to speak, let's say. We have positional dirt, and we have practical dirt. Positional dirt is the legal rap sheet we have for all the sin that we have committed. The only way to clean that or to expunge that is through the blood of Christ, and it washes that rap sheet clean. And when God looks at us from heaven and he sees me, I am pure white, cleansed, no sin at all. You say, wait a second, I know you. You sin all the time. When God sees me through the blood of Christ, I am perfectly clean. And so are each of you, if you're a true believer. However, that does not mean that we don't sin practically. And what does the result of that sin practically do to us? It severs or injures the relationship we have with our Lord. You know, Julie and I do not believe in divorce. We just don't. We're never going to be divorced. Would you agree with that? I think you ought to say yes. She was shaking her head, but I, I uh, now, that doesn't believe, mean she doesn't believe in murder, but no, I'm just kidding. She would never do that. But I could say things to Julie that would seriously injure our relationship. Don could say things to Damaris that would seriously injure their relationship. Not on your life. Oh, you best be careful, right? I would back off if I was the rest of you. If we called Damaris to witness, oh, man. But the fact is, we have our relationship by things we have done. You know, I loved my son, Brooks. 
And I would want to share things with him and help him any way I could. I remember, though, one time, I've, and you can't find these now, I found a right-handed hammer. Now, some of you think, wait a second, there's no such thing as a right-handed. Oh, yes. This hammer is made so that it fits perfectly in a right hand. You try and use it in your left hand, it doesn't work. You don't want to hold it in that hand. It doesn't work. It's designed to fit perfectly under a right hand. And he took my right-handed hammer, and he used it in some project he was at, and he spilled turpentine all over it, and it foamed up, messed up the kind of plastic handle grip that was there. I was furious. We have a rule, Brooks, in our house. You don't add, take people's stuff without asking them. And you always bring it back in the same condition that it was before. I'm sorry, Dad. But I was mad. Now, why are you getting mad over hammer? Because the lesson is you can do things that sever or injure a relationship. Does that mean it can't be healed? You see, God has set out a plan for us, and it's found in 1 John 1, 9. I haven't prepared this, but I'll bet you Steve could stand up and tell us John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yay! Now, we're confessing the sins that we know, but how much unrighteousness is being cleansed? All of it. All of it. Is that what it's saying here? Is that what this passage says? He'll be a vessel. Uh, will, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor. That's what's there for us. We can do that in the cleansing. What does sanctified mean? A vessel for honor. Sanctified. Sanctified means set apart for a specific purpose. Separate from the profane things and dedicate to God. Are you dedicated to God? Ask yourself, is my body dedicated to God? Is my mind dedicated to God? Are my lips dedicated to God? You go through everything like that and, and see. Now, it says he's going to be, have us useful. Useful. Sanctified, useful to the master. That means easy to make use of. He doesn't have to push me when he needs me. Just say, Doug. I need this. And then prepared. Heptuimazo. And heptuimazo means drawn from the oriental custom of sending on before kings on their journey persons to level the roads and make them passable. He wants to use us to prepare for his coming. Now, some people would read that and they would hear that definition. Oh, so we're supposed to be building the kingdom of heaven here, the kingdom of God. Absolutely not. Who builds the church? Who builds the kingdom? Jesus. Not us. Uh-uh. He does it. What we're doing, though, is preparing for his return. What does he need to have done for his return? Everybody whose name is permanently written in the Lamb's Book of Life to have a chance to receive Jesus and uh, enter into the church. We're to be about sharing our faith. Now, wait, how do you know that that's really what he wants us doing, Doug? Jesus, when asked, what, did you, what was your reason for coming to the earth? He said, to seek and to save those who are lost. That's what he said his purpose was. And before he left, he turned to his disciples and said, As the Father sent me, so send I you to seek and to save the lost. Does that mean we stay in church and wait for them to come here? No, that means we seek. We go out. And so we need to come to understand that and how important that is. Now, the master will then be able to use us for his purposes. Now, I want you to understand something. Being used by God Almighty for his purposes can bring such a thrill and an excitement that it is incomparable. When you have had a chance, let me just use this as one example, to 
And it, and it brings different effects to different people. When you have had a chance to have, feel the Holy Spirit speak through you and draw you over to this man, and you ask this man what would happen to him if he died tonight and God asked him, why should I let you into my heaven? And he says, I don't know. And, he, and you say to him, do you want to know? Yes. And you share with him that what it involves to do that, and he makes a decision to receive Christ. Right there, he's born again in front of your very eyes. It's thrilling. It's excitement. It brings tears to your eyes. It's incomparable. And that's just one example of him using somebody to do what he wants to do, and you see it, and you experience it. And it's awesome, is it not less? Absolutely, it's awesome. So, how do we become prepared? And this is where we're going to finish today. How do we become prepared for every good work? I see three things in the scripture. Three things. Number one, Paul has said over and over and will say, study. Study what? God spoke to me this week about this. You know the story about teaching the Secret Service how to spot counterfeit money? You know, the, the way they do it. They don't show them counterfeit money. They show them only the real thing. I heard this week in our seminar, Mark and I were at, and some of the rest of us, Steve was there, th that those guys are such, you can put a blindfold on that Secret Service agent, you hand him a, a pile of bills, and he'll start going through them with the hands and pull this one out, pull that one out, pull the third one out. He, just by feeling them, he can tell the counterfeit. He knows the real thing so well. Doesn't, doesn't pull the other ones out because he felt them and he knew they were real. Now, how you get to there, that takes a lot of work in my opinion. Should we be spending our time studying things that are not the Scripture or studying the Scripture? Well, can't you overstudy the Scripture, Doug? Even saying that sounds ridiculous to me. That's what we need, number one, study. Number two, we need to believe it. You know, it's one thing to know it. When it comes to the Old Testament, Chris, how long have you spent studying the Scripture in your life? Almost as old as you are. Are there maybe, would there be Pharisees in Jesus' time who knew parts of the Old Testament better than you? But did they believe it? No. They didn't believe it. They didn't know the one true God. Of course they didn't believe it. Believing what you study is the second step. You have to be, when I say believe, convinced of it. It has to produce conviction in your life. Conviction is just being convinced of something. Number three, heed it. Now that's kind of a King James word. Heed it. What does heed it mean? Actually, it means, I hate to say this, but you could use the Nike catchphrase. Do it. Just do it. Once you study, once you believe, then just do it. That's what it is. It's really that simple, and yet it's, I'll tell you, it's not easy. We have to work hard and be committed, and will we get knocked down from time to time? Yes, we will, but what's our obligation when we're knocked down? Get right back up. That's exactly right. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the time that we could spend here today studying your word, trying to understand its meaning. I know we didn't finish as much as I planned, but I think we finished as much as you planned. And so, Father, help us to understand. Help us to see what it is that you want us to do. Help me to spend my time and to set aside a sufficient time for studying your scriptures. Praying that you'll give me the understanding. Seeking to know what you mean and how you want it to apply to my life. Now, Father, I pray that you will help me to be faithful in praying for Don Nobler, as I committed to do today. I pray that you will help me to be faithful in coming every Sunday morning at 8.15 to the class prayer meeting down the hall. I pray that you will help me to be faithful in being 
ready to answer the phone every Thursday night at 7.30 when my prayer cell calls and we have a prayer together. And I finally pray, Father, that you will help me to be faithful in praying every night with my wife before we go to bed so that I will become a man of prayer and not just a man of study. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.